I want to invite you guys to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, and while you're doing that, I want to add my welcome to Seth, especially to those of you who are here visiting with us for the first time. Uh, At this point in our gatherings each week, we always turn to the Bible because we believe God has spoken to us there, and that in the Bible, He said to us everything we need to know to understand Him, and not just understand Him, but to know Him, to be friends with Him, to, to know His love and His provision and protection over us. And one of the ways that we sort of pledge our allegiance to his word is to to build our weekly gatherings around it and to spend concentrated time every week trying to understand it on its terms and how it relates to what we're dealing with now in our lives and this week we're part of a we're going to we're going to continue with a series that we've recently begun and we'll we'll be uh enjoying together all fall in an old old letter an ancient letter uh written by one of the men who knew jesus he was a man who, who, who walked with him, who observed him, who listened to him teach, who saw him die and then saw him raised to life again and who was then given a job by Jesus of representing what Jesus said and what he did and what he offers to anyone who will trust in him to those who, who couldn't see Jesus for themselves. He's written this letter to, to, to people he's probably never met that have come to faith in Jesus despite having never seen him or known him who are living in areas where there aren't many Christians and who are, are depending on Peter's letter to try to learn more about what it means to even be a Christian to, to, to trust in him and to, to learn to follow him so that's what this letter that's what the work this letter is doing and the section we're going to consider today continues a conversation Peter began in, in what we looked at last week on hope So Peter charges right into this letter with the hope that gives Christians their identity, their orientation in the world, their sense of of who they are and what their lives are for and where things are headed. Last week, we just looked really carefully at, at, at what that hope is and why it's trustworthy. This week, we begin to see why it's so important. Um, a couple years ago, I remember speaking to a friend, uh, who had advanced cancer, uh, I was just checking in, asking how she was doing, and I don't remember exactly the words that she used, but she said something like, well, where I am, you really have to have something to hold on to, whatever that is for you. Where I am, when you get to this point, you really have to have something you can hold on to, whatever that is for you. It struck me, that qualification, whatever that is for you. It, it, it rang true. What I come to expect, I think, about what many of us assume when it comes to hope. Aren't hopes essentially the same as long as they work? Isn't the main thing that you hope in something, something that works for you, that you find your center? I mean, there isn't the real task to find a ballast, a true north for you that orients you. Do you believe that? What, do you believe it matters what you hope in, so long as you have something that helps you to cope. Uh, Peter, uh, what we looked at last week, and especially what we're going to see today, Peter would say it, it, more than, it more than matters. Everything depends on what you hope in. That, that what matters really is not just hope, but that you have what he's called a living hope. Not just that you have something that helps you to cope with whatever it is you're facing, but that you have a hope that won't be destroyed. A living hope as opposed to a dead hope. An empty hope. A hope that that evaporates like this morning's fog in the heat of the day. What matters, in other words, is a hope that can't be killed. 
a hope that, that, that deserves to live. So last week we talked about the shape of Christian hope. We talked about what it looks like and where it comes from, what it's set on, most of all, what makes it perfectly and eternally secure. I want to refer you to, to, to the audio from last week's sermon uh, because it's a helpful companion for what we're going to do today. Last week, we, we looked at the shape of Christian hope and, and what makes it stable. This week, we see why Peter did so much to emphasize that point. What Peter knew, the reason he starts here, is that hope has a dramatic effect on how we experience sorrow has a dramatic effect on how we experience sorrow in this life. It makes it possible, hope, a living hope, makes it possible to be honest about your pain but not dominated by it. Or in terms Peter uses, a living hope makes it possible to be honest about sorrow but to live with joy anyway. If you want to be honest about sorrow but live with joy, what you need is a living hope. I want to do this, what I want to do this morning in just a few verses is make a couple observations about what Peter says. Zoom in, in other words, on some of the details here and then zoom back out and ask you a question. What we're going to be looking at is this connection between sorrow and joy. And I want to begin by simply reading these three, these four verses rather that we're going to be considering together. And if you found 1 Peter 1, I want to invite you now to stand with me. This is one way we honor God's word as we read it. While I read, beginning in verse 6, and I'm going to continue reading through verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ though you have not seen him you love him though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. You can be seated. I mentioned, I, I want to make just two simple observations about what Peter says here and then zoom out for a question to leave you with. The first observation I want to make here about what Peter said, this comes from verse six, just something really simple, straightforward, but, but we don't want to rush too fast over it and miss it. What Peter says here is that sorrow doesn't necessarily consume joy that comes out of verse six i want to make sure you see how radical that claim is that's built into what he says here what he says in verse six is in this you rejoice that's his beginning he's looking back in what and what do you rejoice well in the things he's just talked about so verses three to five a living hope that makes you rejoice a hope for an inheritance that's not perishable that won't ever fade it can't be corrupted even by you it's 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 untouchable That's what makes it a living hope. And in this hope, you rejoice. Even though, he says, even though now you're grieving. In this you rejoice, though now you've been grieved by various trials. 
what he's, what he's getting at here is that you rejoice now and you grieve now. That they're rejoicing in the midst of their sorrow. The radical claim that's built into this verse is that sorrow doesn't necessarily consume joy. Now, I just want to park here for just a second to make sure we don't rush over this and miss the radical nature of this claim. I think we often assume, maybe, maybe you don't assume this. I, I often do, at least in practice. Maybe this will sound familiar. I think we often assume that, that joy or sorrow are locked in this either or zero sum game. Right? We're, we're, we're one, for one to win, the other has to lose. If joy rises, sorrow falls. And vice versa, and in equal measure. So there's just always a balance or a trade-off. Joy drives out sorrow. Sorrow drives out joy. Think of it like a, a rock displacing water. If you gotta, think of your life like a glass, and there's water that represents your joy in that glass. You drop some sorrow in there, what happens? Well, that joy is going to go out in equal measure to the sorrow that's just been dropped in. I think that's how we often think about it. And, and that means that a lot of times if somebody's in a hard place and they're talking about joy and rejoicing. Sometimes I think we can just assume that they must be suppressing their true feelings because sometimes they do. Sometimes people do suppress their true feelings and try to pretend that things are better than they are and put on a happy face. The, the other reason I think we can assume this is that, is that often joy does displace, get displaced by, by sorrow. Often sorrow does consume it. I mean, the, the specific joys that I get, for example, out of my healthy body, relatively healthy body, get displaced when I'm sick. The specific joy I have in eating food that tastes delicious to me and fills me up is displaced when I've got a stomach bug that turns everything sour. I can't both have joy in that and experience the sorrow of that stomach bug at the same time. It's either or. Well, the joy that you might have, the specific joy of a dating relationship may be displaced by sorrow when it breaks off or the, the joy that I had in the friendships, deep and meaningful friendships with my grandfathers was displaced by the sorrow that I experience now after their death. So often in our experience, sorrow does consume joy. The two can't coexist by definition because the joy and the sorrow trace back to the same source some, some specific circumstance that's nice when you have it but hurts when you don't when sorrow and joy are traced back to a specific circumstance that you either have or don't have then it is either sorrow or joy one or the other and that circumstance might be something beautiful something concrete worthy of your love but but perishable, unstable, and losable. And when joy is tied to that, whatever that might be, then sorrow will, be, will, will take its place at some point. What Peter's saying here is that this common experience we've lived with doesn't have to be the way it is. There's more. He's saying it's actually possible to experience sorrow and joy at the same time. And he's not covering up anything. He acknowledges the grief in verse six. This is real grief. This is not like some sort of churchy, some sort of churchy description of something that's sort of a, maybe a little bit of a cloud, but overshadowed by the breaking morning and the clear, 
glare of the sun that's just risen. It's, it's not one of those like prequels to something good. It's, it's real. It's real grief that's ongoing for him. He's being honest about that in verse six, but he's also acknowledging that through living, living hope, you can still rejoice. I wonder, can, can you? Can your joy survive sorrow? Friends, it will need to. Because sorrow is not unusual. It isn't, it isn't just an unfortunate happenstance that plops down into the life of some people in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sorrow is a built-in, guaranteed feature of human life, not a bug. Sometimes, especially when you're young, you may think that, you're, that, that your, your goal in life is to sort of outpace the sorrow, to stay out in front of it as long as you can. And maybe you're, maybe you're aware enough, you've been paying attention, that, that some people do have hard things that come into their lives, but not everybody experiences hard things like that. And, and maybe through my work and through, through the relationships that I'm building, through the, through the things that I've set as my goals, my true north that I'm pushing hard after, maybe I can stay out in front of it. So you're imagining your life as kind of, you're in the Millennium Falcon and you're fleeing from an Imperial Star Destroyer and you've got your rear deflector shield turned on fully and you just got to stay out in front of it and deflect the blasts that come for you from behind. We watch a lot of Star Wars in my house. It's a Star Wars reference. I get a lot of blanks staring, a surprising amount of blank stares right now. Sometimes I think that's how we can imagine our lives. That's the metaphor we would use. We're just staying out in front and deflect what might come at us from behind. But friends, that's not what's happening. No, you're locked onto a track. You're moving in one direction. And on the opposite direction, moving on that track straight for you is a fully powered steam locomotive engine. And it's bearing down. At some point, you will know the sorrow Peter's talking about. You don't outrun it. At some point, you crash into it. Friends, do you have a joy rooted in a hope that can survive that collision? Where do you find that kind of hope that leads to that kind of joy that can survive that sort of sorrow? That's where I want to spend most of the rest of our time. We're going to camp here on my second, the second thing I want to pull out of what Peter's saying. This is going to be most of the rest of the time, and then I'm going to finish with a question. We've said already, the first observation here is that, is that, that sorrow doesn't necessarily consume joy, even though we might assume it does, and even though it does, actually, in some of our experience. It doesn't have to. Now, here's the second observation I think we can pull from what Peter says here. Sorrow actually could feed joy. Rather than consuming it, it could feed it, it could encourage it, bolster it, strengthen it. Peter has said that our joy is tied to our living hope. Here's, I want to make sure you get this connection. This is so important, friends. This, this next little few steps we're going to take together. There's life in these verses. What Peter has said in verse 6 is that you rejoice in this, meaning our living hope, the one that's not perishable, not fading, not defiled. You, you rejoice in that living hope, he said. Our joy is tied to hope. That's the connection he's made. Now what he's gonna say is that your sorrow can actually refine or clarify or strengthen your hold on the hope that leads to your joy. So joy comes downstream from hope. 
Sorrow can actually refine, clarify, strengthen your hold on the hope that leads to joy. That's the simple claim that I want to try to make as clear as I can from from what Peter has said here in the rest of our time. I think there's two ways that Peter points to that help us experience a sorrow that refines our joy, refines the hope that feeds our joy. Two ways that I want to make sure you see. I'm getting this from Peter, but I want to help you see where I'm coming from here. Here's the first way. The first way that sorrow can refine your hope that leads to joy. The first way is that sorrow can sometimes bring detachment from false hopes we may not recognize we have. Sometimes it's through sorrow, through the grief of losing, that God shows us we had placed our hope on something that couldn't bear the weight. Trials produce what, what, what Peter is calling a tested genuineness of faith. That's verse seven. Look at verse seven. He's saying, you rejoice in this hope, even though now, if necessary, or or perhaps a better translation uh, would be because it's necessary, since it's necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that, with the result that, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. In the middle of that, He gives us an image of gold being refined by the fire. What he's he's showing us is what it looks like for hope to be tested so that it gets stronger, so that it proves its genuineness like gold that's put into a fire to reveal blemishes that can then be scraped away. Fire tests the gold. It makes it pure, removes its impurities. And trials do the same thing for our faith or our confidence in the hope that's set in front of us. So think of this test that he's talking about here, this tested genuine. It's not as a pass or fail kind of test. It, it's not like the gold that, gets, that get, gets tossed away if it doesn't measure up. It's not that kind of test. It's the kind of test that shows what needs improvement, a, a kind of test that leads to refinement, a, a kind of test that, that once it's burning, the impur, impurities like rise to the surface. Oh, now I see them. I didn't see them before. And now I can scrape them off easily and leave behind a product that's more pure, more resilient, more precious. It's that kind of test. I think that's what Peter's trying to show us sorrow can do for our, for our hope, for our faith that claims that hope. Because so, sometimes the things that we see, the things that we love, let's even say the good gifts of God that come to us from his hand and are meant for us to enjoy, sometimes those things can become crutches that prop up our hope in what he's promised us. So that our claim on that inheritance that we still can't see is only as strong as our current experience of other lesser gifts that he may have put into our lives. Where sometimes it's propping up what's really a weak hold on, on the ultimate inheritance that he's, that he's promised us. So sometimes actually what, that, what, what happens in that case is that we're trusting not so much God as his gifts, what we're doing in that case is, is loving them more than we love him through them. And in that way, even, even unknown to ourselves, we can look to God only as a means to an end without even realizing we're doing it. We can look to him as a means to an end. He's how I get what I really want. And anytime we use God as a means to an end, anytime he is how we get what we really want, we've got a joy that's tied to a circumstance that sorrow can consume. The only way to learn that before it's too late is to lose it. 
That's how he tests the genuineness of our faith and leaves us more refined. You can't know without sorrow what Peter wants us to know here. This is not only something that we experience, friends. This is, this is the kind of grief that Jesus was willing to take on. The kind of loss that, that we know as a normal cor- in the normal course of our lives is a loss that Jesus willingly accepted on himself. He didn't have to. Jesus was the one man who, who actually never loved anything more than he was supposed to. He never loved anything except as a reflection of the goodness of his father. He lived to do his father's will. If anyone deserved to live free of sorrow, it was him. By his own decision, by his will, because of his love for you, he was willing to know sorrow as you do. To be afflicted in our afflictions, the Bible tells us. so that then he could offer us something he's known from his own experience, a tethering in the midst of grief to something that won't actually fade. For the joy set before him, he endured a cross for you. Now for a while, since it's necessary, Peter says, you have been grieved so that the tested genuineness of your faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When sorrow pulls our heart away from something we might have trusted rather than God, it fixes our hope on God's friendship, on God's approval, on the praise and glory and honor we will receive from God because of what Jesus deserves, not because of what we deserve. And not on anything that he might give us along the way. This is how God protects us from our tendency to deceive ourselves and believe we're hoping on him only because we still got a grip on what really brings us joy. But there's a second way that sorrow strengthens the hope that feeds our joy. The first way is that sorrow can detach us from false hopes we may not have realized we had. Good gifts given by God, but not meant to give our lives meaning, purpose, or orientation. Not meant to hold us up, no matter what comes. Never meant for that. Sometimes sorrow can detach us from what the gods we've made for ourselves out of the gifts that God has given us. But there's another way that sorrow strengthens the hope that feeds our joy. Sorrow can actually deepen our attachment to Jesus. Sorrow can help us detach from false hopes, but now I think Peter's trying to show us that it can also deepen our attachment to the one true hope in life and in death. Let me show you what I'm getting at here. I've said before that we are, um, we're often dealing with a faith or hope that's diluted in ways we can't always see. And one, one common mi- cause for that kind of mixture, that kind of diluted faith in Israel's experience, and I think certainly in ours as well, was a, a tendency to cling to what we can see. We always prefer to be able to see what we're hoping in uh, for, for obvious reasons. We're, we're visual people. We want something we can understand. 
We're especially tempted to, to trust in hopes that our neighbors have. If our neighbors think it's a good idea, we're going to be influenced by that. We're going to look over at them and take our cues from them. Israel did. Israel's history is full of examples of Israel taking their cues from the nations around them instead of from the law that God had given them. And, and we do the same thing. We set go- goals for ourselves that make sense to our neighbors and hopes for ourselves that, that they're clinging to. And we pursue those goals a lot of times on the same terms that they are. And, and ultimately what they are is, is our terms, terms that we can set and control. Maybe things that'll be visible to other people and admired by them. We can end up spending all our time and energy focused there on what we can see. And when we focus on what we can see, we're going to struggle to understand how and why to focus on Jesus who we can't see. We're going to struggle to attach to him. As long as we are fixated on what we can see and on what others can see and what others are after, it's going to be real hard to love a savior who we can't see. And Peter's talking in that kind of language in verse, in verse eight. He says, though you have not seen him, he draws attention to, to, the, to the fact that you can't see Jesus you love him. Somehow they've gotten to, to love this Jesus that they can't see. Though you do not now see him, says you, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible. So somehow they've become attached to a Jesus they can't see. How did they get there? This is one of those places where I wish Peter had supplied us with a few extra connecting words so he could follow his train of thought. But here I think we just have to follow his context, his flow. He's just talked about the testing that sorrow brings to our faith. And now in verse eight, he's talking about our love for a Jesus we can't see. When our hearts are stripped from their attachment to what we can see, to what we're tempted to trust with our lives, our hearts are deepened in their attachment to what we can't see. I think that's what he's trying to say. When those things we can see are taken from us, the Christ we can't see becomes more tangible. Even, I think, fair to say, more visible. We're better able to love him and to rejoice in the hope that he gives. A love that we can't lose. Friends, uh, perhaps you're here this morning considering what it means to follow Jesus. You're not yet a Christian. We're so thankful that you're here. Last week, one of the things we talked about, uh, especially uh, speaking to those of you who may be considering Jesus and what it means to follow him, is the importance of Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus is alive today, even though he wasn't alive. Even though he died a death as real as the deaths that anyone else has ever died. He, he lives now in an actual body that you could see if it were here in front of you. We talked about how actually the, the evidence in history for this claim that Jesus is alive is incredibly strong and stands up against evidence for anything else we know about the ancient world. I appeal to you guys, if you're interested in hearing more about that, come and talk to me. Let's read together. I'd love to show you what that evidence looks like. Today, I want to appeal to you in a little different way. I want to, I want to actually make a qualification of what I said last week. I, I think that, that the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is a wonderful place to start because it's there. But you should also know that no one ever became a Christian just because they realized there was enough credible evidence for Jesus to be alive again today. That what it takes to, to really know him, to trust in him, and to look for the hope that he's set in front of you is a kind of relational knowledge. The kind of knowledge that, that Peter's celebrating here, where even not seeing him, you could love him. Even not seeing him, you could believe in him and rejoice because of him. That when anyone becomes a Christian, it, it's this personal knowledge of him that they're claiming that they're leaning into 
It's another kind of knowing, a different sort of knowing that's essential. And sorrow is where you often meet him. The Bible is very clear. It's a consistent theme. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He loves to save those who are crushed in spirit. He meets you in your grief. It could be, friends, that if you came heavy this morning, that this is God preparing you for your Savior. Pray to him and ask him to meet with you so that not seeing him, you could love him and see what happens. I want to give you an example of of how I think this works. If you're a Christian this morning, you you are claiming Christ. You are claiming an attachment to an inheritance that you haven't seen yet. That's imperishable and undefiled and unfading, but not yet in your grasp. And it all hinges on this Jesus that you've read about and committed to, but haven't seen. How is it that your sorrow today can deepen your attachment to Jesus while you wait to see him? I've said it's because it it leaves us weaned from what we can see and therefore sort of collapsing onto what we can't see, loving it because now we see why we need it. I want to give you an image. I'm I'm sort of adapting this from from another sermon from another pastor that I heard about. I want to give you an image that really helps me to understand how this works. We'll see if it helps you. When are you most dependent on or attached to your central heat in your home, if you have it? If If you have a furnace in your home, when do you know that you need it most? When do you love it most? When are you most aware of its beauty and its power? Obviously, when it's freezing outside. That's when you know what you've got in your central heat. That's when you see how powerful it is to change your reality. It's the cold that kicks it on. It's the cold that activates its power. It's the cold that that draws you into its work, makes you to see it and to love it and to experience it with gratitude and even, yes, joy. So when you live in San Diego, how much love and affection and daily dependence do you have on a furnace? Well, that's pretty abstract, isn't it? The benefits of your furnace. If you live in Buffalo in the winter, that's a different story altogether. See, see, in, in the comfort that many of us can enjoy lifestyles that many of us can live now it's as if we're living in san diego insulated from the harsh realities that other people take for granted living comfortably the way many of us do we can think what heat people pay for that really they would actually put money into a, a central heat system we're sitting out on our patios wondering what they're talking about some guy it's as if jesus is has come offering us central heat and we're sitting around in the balmy sun wondering what in the world he's offering But your suffering, friends, your sorrow, well, that makes your deliverer precious. That makes him beloved. That makes him something to cling to and to rejoice in and to treasure him. Made all the more valuable because he can't be lost and destroyed. Through sorrow, here's the point. Let me just boil it down here. Through sorrow, Jesus becomes more precious because the colder it gets, the hotter he burns. And the hotter he burns, the more we love him. 
even though we can't see him. The more we love him, he who is our inheritance, he who gives us himself, who loves us in return, the more we rejoice in what cannot be taken away from us. Do you see it? So our joy don't have to fight, don't have to consume one another. Not when sorrow feeds your attachment to the one in whom you hope. And when that living hope brings you joy. And here's where I want to finish. I want to give you one question to sit with. So two simple observations coming out of these few verses. We hadn't covered much ground. There's life here in it, but it's not very much to cover. Sorrow doesn't necessarily consume your joy. You need to know that. In fact, sorrow could actually feed your joy. Just the opposite. So I want to leave you with this question. What, what is the story in your sorrow? What's the story you're telling yourself about your sorrow? I, the reason I want to ask you this question is I, I want to think about how we can put this truth to work in our lives. Not just as individuals, but in, 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 not, not just as we uh, on our own wrestle with, with joy and sorrow. There's a lot of hope here for your individual walk with Christ. But, but also for our church's life together. I and mean, one of the things we promise when we become a member of our church is that we are going to rejoice and mourn together, that your sorrow will become mine and that my joy will become yours. And, and we're going to work at that. So where are the tools for us in these few verses for sharing sorrow and joy and fighting together to hold on to hope in the midst of it? What Peter's trying to do here in these few verses is to put sorrow in perspective. He's trying to explain sorrow as a character with a director in a story, a storyline that's got a director in it, that's got a final and a beautiful ending that that director is moving it towards. What he's trying to do here, I think what he assumes, he's not spelling this out, but what he assumes is that all of us depend on stories to make sense of the world. We depend on stories to make sense of what happens to us. That's how we connect one thing to another and, and bring some order out of it. All of us are wired up to find meaning through narrative, through stories. The meaning or the importance of things that happen in our lives doesn't come on a label. We have to work at it. We have to interpret it. We have to plug in these individual things that happen to us into something bigger. I recently found my way through another book to, to a, a wonderful anecdote in an, an older book on ethics and philosophy by a guy named Alistair McIntyre. It's called After Virtue. There, listen to this. Listen to this image. This is, a, I think, really helpful to know what Peter's trying to do here and then to set us up for what we can do with what we were learning from Peter this morning. McIntyre talks about, it sets up, sets up this situation. It says, imagine I'm standing waiting for a bus and the young man who's standing next to me suddenly says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Now, the sentence there is not, not a problem. I mean, we know what each of those words means. But what does that mean? What's that about? Well, the only way to figure out what that's about is you have to have a wider context of events to plug that into. You have to know what sort of story that fits into. So, for example, McIntyre says, it could be that he just uttered such sentences at random intervals. Maybe he's losing his mind. That would make sense of it. Or it, it, it could be that he's mistaken me for somebody who yesterday had approached him in the library and asked, do you by any chance know the Latin name of the common wild duck? That would make sense of that statement. Or maybe he's just come from a session with his psychotherapist who's urged him to break down his shyness by talking to strangers. And you know, this was the best thing he could come up with to apply that lesson. 
Or maybe best yet, I like this one the best. This is a little relic of when this book was written. Or he's a Soviet spy waiting at a prearranged rendezvous and uttering the ill-chosen code sentence which will identify him to his contact. That would make sense of it. But one way or another, for that sentence to make sense, it's got to be plugged into a bigger story. Otherwise, it's just senseless. The action makes no sense otherwise, right? Narrative, story, it's the key to meaning, to orientation, to how we know what's up. And what you need to know is that even if you don't realize you're doing this, you are constantly telling yourself stories about your life, interpreting what's happening to you making sense of it, connecting the dots. That's always happening for all of us. And when we do that, it's never neutral. So we gotta get clear on what we're doing, why and how. Let me make a point on that. Let me put a point on it. In your suffering, in your sorrow, what's the story? Is this your abandonment by God? Is this your life going off the rails? Peter is giving you a story that you could choose. He's placing our sorrow inside a different story. The same story that includes deep sorrow of Jesus on the cross for the joy set before him. A story that Peter tells us will involve suffering like Jesus did, but never pointlessly. A story in which everything leads to the praise and glory and honor promised to us at the revelation of Jesus. A story that always builds to the same outcome, verse 9, the salvation of our souls. Now, I'm not saying, friends, that we always see the point of the details. I'm not saying that we can know why one person's path takes one course and another person's takes another course and both of them end up with praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus, enjoying the salvation of their souls. I don't know why you've suffered the way you have. I'm not saying the details will always make sense. What I am saying, what Peter's saying, is that the big picture is not unclear. In the big picture... God is preparing us for glory. He is giving us our unfading, imperishable inheritance. He's giving us the kingdom that belongs to the poor in spirit who only get that way through grief. Often what he's doing is breaking down what we've built so he can build for us. Are you suffering this morning? Are you knowing sorrow? Well, look at Peter's story. Pray through it. Ask your friends to tell it to you and remind you that it's true. Invite them to work with you on your perspective. And one of the things we said this summer in our series on Lamentations is that it's so important for us to always just say and bear witness to the hard things in our lives. There's no room for covering those up as Christians, and no need to. Jesus has been there. He's not intimidated by it. We shouldn't be either. But saying that we should bear witness to sorrow and not try to hide from it is not the same thing as saying you can't look for hope in the midst of it. In fact, the calling for us as Christians 
is to help one another place our sorrows, real though they be, owning up to them and acknowledging them for what they are into this larger story where God is preparing us for glory. Your friends will be intimidated to do that for you if you don't ask them. Ask them to remind you. And friends, when you're encouraging somebody else in their sorrow, use Peter's words, not yours. And Peter's words are such a gift to us. You don't have to know exactly what they're going through to know what God is doing in it. And you don't have to tell them God is doing something in their sorrow on your own authority. You just tell them what Peter says here. I think the only way we get to a culture where we're helping one another tell this story rightly is by God's power working in us. So I want to finish this message. I'm going to finish our time in God's word just praying to him that he will help us to, to grieve in faith, to rejoice in our grief and to help one another to do that. Let's pray and then we'll sing some more songs together. Father, we, uh, we thank you for speaking to us and telling us of what you've done through Christ, even for sinners like us. And we thank you that Jesus did not despise the shame, but was willing to be afflicted in our affliction for the joy that was set before him. And now we want to go through affliction with that same joy in front of us the praise and honor and glory Jesus got that he promises to give to us. And we know that our only hope for holding on in that, in that hope, our only hope for claiming it for ourselves and, 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 and not losing it is your hold on us. We pray that your spirit would be in us, making these words come alive and making us able to use them, not just for ourselves, but for our friends. And I I pray that you would build us into a culture of care where we're unafraid to be honest and unafraid to look for hope. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.